well into this. Yeah, I'm pretty sure most of that's going to get deleted. It shouldn't be. It should be left on the table. That's how you should start this one. I'm pretty sure most of that's going to get deleted. Tide (laughs) Pods and podcasts are related. (laughs) Our job is to help you win. The destination is I will be a disciple who can make disciples. We got to watch people see themselves as world changers. Hey guys, we do welcome you to this next episode of the Disciples Made podcast. I'm Brian Phipps, and we are all about multiplying disciples that make the world a better place, disciples that make disciples. And we want to talk about real stories involved with that. We want to share best practices involved. We want to not steer away from real, honest discussion about these things. And of course, we always want to have uh, some shenanigans. We're goofballs. So that's what we do. We're going to try to bring them all uh, for you today. Before we get started in today's episode, I just want to stop and say thank you for what you do. You're welcome. Yeah. Not you. Oh. I mean, thank you guys, too. I mean, you're my buds. You're you welcome. work hard. You're you, welcome. You care about the kingdom. You were staring off away from us, so. I know. We That's should, why I snatched it. I was should, like, I'm bringing it back. Yeah, I'm have, taking it. No, I know it's not for me. I'm this grabbing it. This isn't about you right now. Think about the people that are listening to this right now. You might be in your car. Mm. You might be working out at the gym oh, or whatnot. And yep. uh, you probably. Lit, lit right now. You got it. One more. One more. Push it. Got it. They got that final rep in. I bet that gave them their PB right there. What is he talking about? Mm-hmm. Personal best. <laughs> wow. That was so coded. I had no idea. You're you, like a middle schooler with your little text hey, lingo. <laughs> I did my personal best with hot dogs the other day. <laughs> you almost beat Joey. I almost beat you Joey. You almost beat Joey Chestnut. Holy cow, that's crazy. No. I'm talking to the people that right now, when they're listening to this, are at least for a moment distracted with the millions of things that they have on their mind, not just on their mind, but on their soul. They care about what they're doing. You, the listener, care about the people that you're serving. You care about the ministry. And we just want to stop and say thank you. Mm-hmm. We're a huge fan of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're a huge fan that you love Jesus. We're a huge fan that you love his church. We're a huge fan of you because you want to make a difference. And our desire during this time is to help you do that better, more efficiently, to where your home is healthier, where your life is healthier, and your ministry is more fruitful. So we're grateful for you. You know, if you're going kind of beyond where you've been and you're wanting to really step into multiplying disciples, that might even ask you to do more for a short period. And that's why we need each other. We need a community. And today, community is going to be a big word for us. We're going to be dipping into the next pillar of the IDE called Community Forge. Before we do that, I want to back up and just do some review of the other pillars of the intentional disciple-making environment. Back Rob is backing up. So, Rob, you are jonesing to speak, clearly. So, why don't you give us <laughs> no, a quick no, review no. No, on no. the focus no. that we have, which is the outcomes. What are the outcomes, and why do we focus on them? Rob is refusing to speak, so I will step in. He is like the five-year-old I, I know. Kid. I'm practicing silence and he, solitude. He just, he just made fun of you for being a middle schooler, and then he successfully uh, took the role on. He did. So, outcomes... <laughs> Character and calling. That's right. Nailed it. Spirit Nailed it. driven outcomes. It's about the telos, about the purpose, about who we're becoming. Habit fueled. 
Habit fuel. What are some of the habits? Bible reading? Silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. (laughs) Okay, we get to to partner with the Spirit as God is working in us. Yes. Unmerited favor and grace because of what Jesus has accomplished. But grace is not uh, exclusive of effort. And so what God is working in, we partner with them and work out through spiritual habits. I love it. And the habits, though, need to focus on the outcomes. Right. Habits are not an end in and of themselves. They're the way that we work together with the spirit and transformation and character and calling. Yep. Professor Rob has arrived. Thankfully. <laughs> no, sir. Five-year-old kid's gone. Professor Rob is back. We focus on the outcomes of character and calling. We are fueled by the habits the, the, that lend to those outcomes. We talked uh, last time about being content flavored. It's, uh, it's not a derogatory way to talk about the role of content. It's just saying different contents needed for different purposes. People that are just on the front end of pursuing Jesus need to talk about God and, and pursue him from an angle that's very different from those that are being trained to influence others. And so it's content flavored. Today we're going to dip into Community Forged and then we'll go on beyond that to Mission fixated. And so uh, what I want to say on the outset here is that community is a lot like content. It has its place. Content has its place. But you can't focus on community. The church has been kind of selling community. And and we're we're going to go real quickly into kind of like an honest conversation about this. when, When small groups became a primary model for the church, A lot of them weren't selling multiplication of disciples with those small groups. They were selling community. Talk to me about the danger involved when community becomes the purpose for community's sake and not for something else. We have a very different idea for community, but let's talk about that for a moment. And I just threw both of these guys a curveball with that. So they might take a second to jump in. Well, my experience with small groups having been in couple large churches that were very, very invested in groups is, first of all, you're promising friendship and community, but you can't really deliver on it. Right. Because you're, you're, you're putting people together into kind of a false social contract where it's like, you're, you need community, you need friends, you need people to do life with, and we're going to throw eight strangers together in a room and give you a curriculum or watch the weekend service with three discussion questions. And I think anyone who has any kind of relational savvy realizes, you know, that's that's not really the incubator for real community or real friendship. You know, us getting together for a week, having a conversation about a curriculum. So I, I, that's my first issue with it. It's like a artificial environment. Yeah, now I've seen, and you've probably seen as well, oftentimes, uh, well, I, often is probably the wrong word, but I have seen it on more than a few occasions mm-hmm. where really rich friendships have evolved out of that. For That's sure. true. Yeah. I mean, that I hang happen. out with yeah. a group of guys once a year on a golf trip. Man, they their their group is tight, and it all started with that strategy. Mm-hmm. But I would say that's a pretty low percentage of those that do that and stay on for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a part of a small group one time that we had very deep friendship that had, had developed, but we were all same life stage same age it was when we were first beginning to have kids and we were the reason it worked so well is because we were always doing things together Uh, so there was more than just that hour a week but i remember we had this sort of emotion of man we we want others to experience this this is so good 
and we threw this big party and invited a bunch of uh, you know young married people to come hang out with us and they still made fun of us a few years later because we were like, man, you, you, you got to get into a small group. This is the most amazing thing. There's wonderful community involved in it. And, and you guys should form one. <laughs> we weren't actually inviting them into ours. And that's how they would make fun of us later was like, there was no way for us to experience what you were communicating to right. us because you were asking us to form some you know, weird thing that we weren't connected to, but using you as a picture and it just, it wasn't, it wasn't connecting for us, you know? So I remember that was a moment, uh, Kristen and I decided we had to step out of that kind of insular experience uh, because we were realizing like the, the, a closed system like that can turn in on itself and eventually, uh, create, an unfriendly environment where insecurities are developing because there's nothing new flowing in or out of it. Yeah, without remarkable leadership, groups that come together for community's sake have a hard time really evolving. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, you go through the life cycle of it being, you know, brand new and then exciting and then really meaningful, but you top the top of that bell curve and you start to go down the other side without some exceptional leadership that constantly recreates that thing. You know, I'll never forget the first time I really realized that I was um, leveraging the community uh, language to draw people into groups. You need relationships. We all need relationships. In a transient culture, you need a family. Right. And people were drawn to that. And then I was asking them later to multiply their group. You know, give me new leadership out of your group. And it's like I was asking them to, you know, I was selling them on community. And then I was trying to lead them into multiplication. And it was very difficult for multiplication to emerge when you've actually you know, invited them into something very different than that. Yeah, I know another thing for us that we use in our training that we talk about a lot is, and this is I think what you're getting to as well, when you focus on community, you don't really always get it. And we use that language, when you focus on community, you might get it. When you focus on mission, you always get community. Without a doubt. We use those analogies of the Band of Brothers or the Lord of the Rings. You can pull people together from very disparate backgrounds and put them on mission together. People that would never be in the same place at the same time and have a friendship. But when they are fixated on moving towards something together, there is this family bond that forms that you can't separate. That's exactly right. And that's where I like to tell people, Jesus never went up to his disciples and said, hey guys, you wanna grab a latte and study the Torah. It wasn't about the hang time. The hang time happened, and it was much more meaningful long term. So with that in mind, basically, you know, content's awesome. It's critical, but it's not the top of the spear. It's the outcomes we're looking for, and the content supports that. Community is similar in that regard. If it becomes the focus, we don't get really what we're after, but it's a huge part of it. So how do these two ingredients relate or interact. We want to talk about community and mission. We're kind of peeking in to the mission fixated, but not quite. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really important, I think, to start to put these two things together. So, Rob, tell us a little bit about community and mission and how those two relate, particularly to each other and back to the first three pillars of the IDE, the outcome-focused, habit-fueled, and content-flavored. Yeah, Brian, he kind of tipped his hat that direction already. I think what he put his finger on is there's something very catalytic about both community and mission being integrated and mixed together. 
So the way I think about the first three ingredients, which we've talked about, outcome-focused, habit-fueled, content-flavored, those are, they're like water. And community on mission is like the bowl or the container that carries that water. And if, if I'm an individual and I've got outcome-focused, I got great content, I'm practicing the habits, I'm, I'm still going to be, um, if I'm not a part of a community on mission, I'm never going to reach flourishing. I'm never going to be multiplying because disciple making is a, a family affair. Disciple making is a team sport. So those first three ingredients, if they're not put into the container of community on mission, it's like the water just spilling out on the floor. You're never really fully ingesting the impact of those. So that's the way I see it in my mind. I, I don't know if that's helpful or confusing, but the first three are like water, and the other two are like a bowl. And so you really, what you're suggesting is, unless you're approaching this thing called community, you really can't be forged to the degree that you are intended. It's impossible. It's impossible. All right. So you, you use an interesting phrase and you, and you said it a couple of times, a community on mission. So these aren't just two separate pillars, community forged and mission fixated. You're putting those words together, a community on mission. What do you mean by that? Um, Alan Hirsch in The Forgotten Ways uh, uses this phrase called communitas and it comes from some French sociologists or anthropologists who was studying native tribes and they'd have rites of passages. And his, his discovery is basically there's a unique type of community that emerges when you're in a rite of passage, when you're in a great trial. Like Brian referred to Band of Brothers, Fellowship right. of the Rings. It's, a, it's this sort of uh, unique community and bondedness that happens when we have a shared risk, a shared mission. We, we have to make unbelievable sacrifices. It's costly. It, it pushes us together and unifies us in a way that no other environment can. And that's what's missing in the life group, small group model of the church in America. It, um, we've kind of pulled out mission and we've even pulled out disciple making. And then what happens is it's, it's a low challenge, high invite. So it's just comfy. You know, it's like just sitting in a lazy boy all day. We're not really going anywhere or doing anything. And that feels good for a while, especially in a world that's chaotic. But eventually you're, you're like, a, you know, you kind of feel like a slug, you know? Yeah. So groups have become more like relational, you know, flypaper. We just want people to stick and stay. But eventually, like Brian said, if there isn't an outflow, it gets stagnant. It gets old. It's like, ugh. but when community and mission are fused, uh, it, it's constantly evolving. You know, I'm thinking about my microchurch in our neighborhood, and we have two families that have uh, jumped in over the last month or so. Uh, via COVID and just the insertion of two new families and all their, uh, they may be listening to this, please know I love you. But just the complexities of like, hey, there's two new families and they have stuff going on and we all have stuff going on. Changes it. It does. And it's like, oh, we're all Changes like, the dynamic. we're like relating differently, but it's exciting because we have new people and, and they're like falling in love with Jesus and woo, but it's not as comfortable as it was four right. weeks ago. But that's like exciting. You know what I mean? At the same time. So, um, that's what 
when we talk about community on mission, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, interesting dynamic that you just started to describe, but you didn't go all the way into. If community was the focus, then you've got to fix the chemistry of the community. Mm-hmm. Or you don't invite the new people. Or you don't invite them at all. I, I don't want all that. And that happens <laughs> I'm really, lot. I'm really good with where we are. <laughs> exactly. But if mission's the focus, community is a servant to that. And I, and I love how you've decided to press forward and I've got my own stories. Let me, let me, let me invite us to go into kind of a risky place. And, and, and then this is my reminder of myself to go back and, cause I'm trying to put myself also in the, um, in, in, in the, in the spot of the listener right now. Uh, so I've got two, two things in my mind. I hope to be able to come back to both of them, but let's, let's dig into this tough con- uh, part of the conversation. You, Rob, you were describing earlier that a lot of churches have fallen into the place where small groups are more of an assimilation tool than a discipleship multiplication tool. Would you totally, would would you say that that, that you would, are you going that far to suggest that? Yeah. Yeah. I think by and large that does summarize the small group strategy of the vast majority of churches. And that's based off of conversations with literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pastors. Yeah. And so I'm not just pulling that out of the air. So, I don't I don't also think it's like poorly motivated. I think it's out of a shepherding heart in some way of recognizing there is in our culture we're lacking what I'm sure we'll get to in a minute is this deeper family oriented system. You know, so we've got this whole uh, breaking down of the family system. And because we don't have that, I think our culture, or at least our church leaders are saying, I see that you're missing community and we want this for you. And we do see in other parts of the world this like relational connectivity and how uh, disciple making and multiplying happens in these smaller environments. So we want you to have community. We want you to experience family. Um, but it falls short. And then I think... At some point, it probably just kind of flips into yeah. Without without mission propelling it, it just sort of degrades down to self concern. Yeah. Rather right. than that outward focus of mission, that it's like the fire, the trial, the sacrifice, the adrenaline rush that mission brings. That's what truly bonds us. Without that, we just sort of drift back to well, it's our little holy huddle. You know, it's it's a and and a lot of times the small groups don't even deliver that. And I wouldn't, I would say too, not to take us too far off, but there's probably those moments where, you know, every church leader realizes, oh no, we've, we've dipped back into just assimilation and just some community and we need to infuse mission. So we want you all to pick a service project. Mm-hmm. And then there's this little run with it for a season. And it's, you know, because they're not all wrapped around a personal calling and we're just doing an activity and my life gets in the way and I can't schedule around that, we dip back in. And then a year and a half, it's like, oh, we gotta get mission back involved in this thing. And ultimately it's the assimilation that continues to keep them going <laughs> instead of the mission. That's good, it's, it's missional activity, not mission fixated. That's a big distinction and it won't work. It will not work. What we're recognizing again is that all five of these pillars that we're talking about are mission critical mm-hmm. and where they fit in the position of priority uh, is also mission critical. Mm-hmm. So community is critical, but we're going to talk about community in a, in a, in a more, in a more than a kumbaya, let's hold each other's hands and, and go. We're going to, we're going to 
really double click down into this, but real quickly, the other thing that I wanted to bring up is, Rob, when you were describing this band of brothers, this Lord of the Rings, this uh, tested by fire, I was sit, trying to sit in the seat of the person listening and going, I, what I was feeling was, I want some of that. And I'm scared of that. Exactly. And <laughs> I don't have time for that. And But I really want that. And I can feel when my life doesn't have enough of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just think about the community that we have, the communitas that we have, because we're brothers on mission. Mm-hmm. We've partnered up and we've teamed up and we're, we've got a, we've got a, a, a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal of 50 disciple making movements in 50 cities across America. And then you guys with the Kansas City Underground, you know, 12 million micro churches in Kansas City in the next six <laughs> whoa, months. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> no, but that's too much goal. mission. <laughs> that's too much mission. We don't even have that many people. <laughs> But there's never six (laughs) microchurches for every person. (laughs) That's exactly right. But there's never a question as to what we're about. Each day of the week, sorry. Right? There's never a question on what we're about. And one of the reasons we find great community with one another is because we've all dumped into this deep end of the pool. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think everybody's like, so one comment before we start to really talk more specifically about what community forged is and looks like, how would you address that person that's teetering between the, I really want a part of that, but I'm kind of afraid of that. What, what's, there's that statement, the what's in it for me, the with them, what's in it for me? Give us a value add for why they would want to go here before we talk about what it is. Well, I think one of the most haunting questions that um, anyone who's missed a significant opportunity has to live with later on in life is what if, mm. you know, and if, if you play it safe um, and settle for security, you know, over risk, I promise you it will lead to regret. Yeah. And that there will be a point where you look back and go, man, I wish I would have risked it and even maybe failed and fell on my face rather than this what if thing. Mm. that hangs over my head, you know? And I remember this conversation with my dad that, you know, really broke my heart. He he met Christ and was after a horrible accident where he was paralyzed and had to learn to walk again. His fiance left him mm. while he was in a coma. Pretty rough. <laughs> but he had some guys he played softball with who knew Jesus and they carried him to Jesus. They were stretcher bearers. And, and he told me, man, I was on fire. Like people are like, man, maybe you're supposed to be a pastor, you know? He's telling me this a few years before he dies. And and he said, um, I feel like I've played it safe though. Mm. And I, I can't help but think I've missed maybe what God wanted me to do. Mm. And I, I I was, you know, I left the room and I started crying. I didn't want to cry in front of him. <laughs> right. But it was like, he had so much regret. And he's like, oh, man, I hear about your t- I just got back from India and I told him a story of like a miracle, a literally flat out miracle I got to see firsthand. And and he was like, oh, I wish I could go to India. Hmm. I, I'll never go now though. And I, I just think we make choices and God lets us live with the consequences of them. You're making me think of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is basically Solomon's, I played it safe repertoire mm-hmm. and a challenge for us to embrace it. Brian, what would you add to that as far as just a value add for people wanting it but maybe afraid of it 
Yeah, I think the thing that I was really thinking about was family. And I don't think we have the best picture of it here, but when we do see it, there's something deep inside our soul that just, it resonates. It's like you can feel that like, you know, it's like moving towards it. And, you know, to miss out on that, now having experienced it a few times in different places uh, with different uh, extended families that we've helped build and and see you know emerge in that way is it's like this is the best life you know we talk about that so much like your best life now and it's loneliness is not not it you know I'm, like we have actual data and science now about how loneliness is killing people mm-hmm. and the the flourishing in You're my own about soul. COVID. Yeah, that's yeah. it's, it's it's remarkable. Yeah. yeah, even before that, just like I heard something on NPR, you know, like two years ago, middle class white guys that have no friends, yeah. you know, and um, whatever how it's killing them, and it's just interesting to hear those things and to say like my life does not mirror that picture, and it is full, mm. and it's because it's more than just me and my wife and our kids and we we've got a big enough tribe on our own but we still like it it's it's greater when we welcome more people into it that's fantastic i love it so we regularly say here on this podcast and in our coaching and and things like that that uh, we want a whole lot more than jesus message we want to engage his methods so he had a very particular methodology when it came to communitas or this thing called community um there's a there's relational environments tell me quickly what relational environments are why those are important and then what were the relational environments that jesus ordered his life around i love talking about the 31272 and i remember the first time i encountered those relational spaces that was what uh, if We'll, we'll go back into 312.72 in a minute, and Rob can probably dive deeper into those. But the first time I encountered this idea of relational spaces, I was reading the book Search to Belong by Joseph Myers, and he talks about how we have these public spaces, social spaces, personal spaces, and intimate spaces. Mm-hmm. And in the public space, there are places of 100 or more. You have some sort of shared identity that brings you together. Uh, but you're not sharing deep information. The next space, the social spaces. Can you give me an example of a hundred type of things so people can start? Yeah, to yeah. Um, I, I lived eight years in Auburn, Alabama, so college football is always my kind of go-to on this. <laughs> I would say it's like it's the stadium. You know, when you're in the stadium, this is my experience. It's like when you're in the stadium, there's you know thousands of people. And when the team scores the touchdown, you can high five and hug someone you have never met, <laughs> and you feel like you belong to this massive. It's because everybody's family. wearing the same colors. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say there was a hundred people at Tuscaloosa. I know that, that can't <laughs> be true. Don't. We won't go there. Roll Tide. So. Roll tide. Uh, the next phase would be the social space, and this is anywhere between 50 and 70. And I would always say, you know, like when you're in the stadium, you hug that person and you don't tell them, hey, you know, my grandma just died. Like, that's inappropriate. You know what I mean? Like, that's. <laughs> that felt weird. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Physically, everyone what are you just doing went after the game. Can ah, we talk? That's weird, you know? I'm um, turning red. Um, at the social space level, I would say this is like the tailgate where everybody comes together and. 
um, it's this is a space where it's appropriate for me to bring my friend to that space even if it's if it's a tailgate I was invited to I say hey you know can I bring my buddies absolutely you know and th- and there's this shared space where we're still here for this team environment but we're hanging out for hours and it, it's also an appropriate space where I can say hey my buddy just lost his job and he's actually in the same industry as you do you think you could get him an interview mm-hmm. you know there's there's mm-hmm. th- certain information that we can share in that environment that's okay and it's safe but again it's still still like the grandma situation <laughs> probably not going to bring it up but we're right there on the edge i could bring it up with a close friend at that tailgate gotcha. the next space down would be the personal space and uh we jump down to numbers like six to eighteen ish you know i know that could even be a kind of a big number but i always say this is a, sp- a space where we're not going to the tailgate we're watching the game at my house and it's a few of my close friends. It's a few people that I know that I really want to spend time with. And this is a space where definitely the situation in my family of the loss that we experienced is okay. And we're probably going to spend some time talking about it because you're going to be over there for most of the day. I might even get into some deeper issues, telling stories about her, or whatever that experience is. And then the intimate space was the last space that I learned about uh, in that whole kind of system. And this is uh, the one to two, one-on-one, one to two, one to three. And uh, he says in this book, this is where you share naked information. Like this is the most intimate you can be with somebody. And this is where you're sharing hopes and fears and dreams. And it's important to know what space you're operating in so that you'll know what kind of conversations are appropriate. So even going back to the small group conversation we were just having, you know, we would help church leaders understand or small group leaders when we're coaching them. It's like, if you've got that person in your group that just keeps going, I want to go deeper, I want to go deeper, I want to go deeper, they're telling you they want more intimate disciple making happening in their life probably. Hmm. They want the intimate conversations. And, and conversely, um, if you have that person that's always sharing really vulnerable information in a group of, you know, 18 to 20 that should be shared at that intimate space, it's like you've got to learn how to coach them, you know, in, in ways to minimize that language and, and hold off. And the church has often missed that social space, which is the 20 to 40 to 50, 60 ish. That, that size, yeah, the 72, which is an important number for us. And so the first time I encountered these spaces, the, uh, the, the group was highlighting, you know, we've missed this environment. But when you look at the way the New Testament church spread throughout the Roman Empire, it's actually through that social space, that extended family, the oikos that we read in the New Testament with the gospel spread from oikos to oikos, and they meant household to household. And the socioeconomic structure of the the Greco-Roman world was built on these households that specialized in a craft like the potters. They made pottery. The the masons, who did bricks. The masons didn't make pottery. You know, you have the smiths that did blacksmithing. And so the gospel is spreading from the potters to the masons to the smiths. And so it's this explosion of disciple-making that's moving through that Greco-Roman world. And I think one of the things we have to recapture in the modern age is, for us, how do we identify these extended families like that? How do we identify those tribes, plant the gospel within those kind of um, extended families and whatever they look like today? 
which may which may look like soccer moms gotcha or you know the hip-hop community or you know graffiti artists it's it's deeply human to organize in this way like Edward Hall, who was a sociologist who was kind of like the father of, it's called proxemics, which is what we're talking about. These different sizes of social spaces. I mean, it was his research and observation. It's like, this is what humans do. We don't have to be taught to do this. Yeah, and you, and Brian kind of ticked off these unwritten rules. Like, you know when someone's breaking, it's like, no, 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 way too vulnerable. Yeah. Like, please. Pull up, pull, <laughs> pull up, up, pull up. <laughs> you know, and, and it's a cue to you. It's like, this person's hurt or broken. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Those are the, because we we just intuitively know these the rules at these different spaces you know and what brian's talking about is you know the oikos where basically the gospel drops in and it's converted into what we call a microchurch you know and and i think that has been god's primary strategy period yeah. from the very beginning so All- microchurch would be uh, considered a 72 uh i i don't think we want to get too limited on the numbers or too gotcha. uh, what i'm saying is that way of humans being organized uh-huh. when the gospel hits it it's like boom you've got the basically the embryo of a, a micro church now maybe 12 and maybe 50 and maybe you know yeah uh, I, I think you have to be careful the numbers because you can look at a congregation of a hundred that only sees each other on sunday mornings mm-hmm. and it's made up of these you know um personal space type groups that are you know eight each or you know what i mean like it it, those gaps in those numbers are kind of hard to 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 pin down it might be a congregation of 72 which functions at a public space you know what i mean that's made up anyway so i I think we want to be careful with the numbers but just paying attention to the dynamics and what is it that's pulling us together and holding us in this moment and and then we begin to understand more of those social cues but there's one space that I left out uh, that you know we've kind of added into this whole mix that Joseph Myers definitely didn't put in the search to belong, and that's the the father space. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. If you look again, the, for us Jesus model, you know everything came down to him and his father. And it's like the father and I are one, and that the way Jesus abided with the father determined everything about his identity and everything about his destiny. And it is the most important space. You know, it's the, um, Bobby Harrington and uh, Alex Absalon have written a book that's called Discipleship That Fits, and they call it the divine space. And Mm -hmm. it's that divine space that energizes all the other spaces, you know? That's the place of rest that we emerge from, you know? That feeds all the other levels of community, and then he had his three, Peter, James, and John. And, um, and you, if you think about his interactions with them, it's everything from like, Hey, I need you to take care of my mother now yeah. <laughs> to like, I'm in my very worst moment and I'm literally shedding, you know, drops of blood because of the agony that I'm in. And I want you to be with me, hmm. which they failed miserably on <laughs> <laughs> or the greatest joys. Like I'm literally revealing my glory at the top of this mountain and you get to be here and guess what? You're going to see some dudes you've read about in the past. <laughs> that you may have never met. Right. We're going to change all that tonight. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. And they're both going to point at me. So, <laughs> And you're going to you're going to want to actually keep this community right here. Exactly. And we're going to say no. Yeah. We're going back down the mountain. That's exactly right. And then what's interesting about the 12 is uh, 
this this is one of those things I find really interesting is how how diverse that group of twelve actually was. Yeah, it's true. You know, you have everything from zealots who are ready to pick up a sword and just run it through the stomach of a Roman soldier to like, no, I work for them. Yeah, or a tax collector that <laughs> right. works for them. Yeah. That's my boss. He's a good guy. Like, you know, yeah. and and that Jesus threw them all together, which shows you, um, I, I, affinity matters, right? But I look at my microchurch, and there are people in it that. Um, it took me a year or two to actually learn how to love, and now I'm crazy about them. Hmm. But if you would ask me, do you have affinity with them? It'd be like, no, no, right. nope, don't really want to hang. <laughs> and now I actually love hanging with them. And what I realized was how small I was, mm, sure. how how small my capacity was to love, and uh, how much I needed to change. You know, and I think that's what Jesus is modeling. It's like I'm going to throw some unlikely characters together, and you're going to discover you could be family with yeah. me. I'm trying to think about what the world would look like if 100% of the people had that posture. Right. Mm-hmm. What would, how would social media be different? You know, how about even 50% of the people had that posture? Make the world a better place. It man. would make the world much, uh, a much better place. So you've done the one, the divine space. Yep, you've done three, the three, 12. the intimate space. You did the 12 as the 12 disciples. Keep the biblical picture going. What's yeah, the 72 sure. look at? Brian gave us kind of a, a contemporary view. Uh, what does it look yeah, like? Yeah, one of our guys, we were talking about this the other day, uh, word to Jason Morris. He uh, has this interesting theory. So if you, Jesus mm-hmm. sent them in pairs, right? Mm-hmm. So if you take the 12, you've got six pairs. And if six pairs are overseeing 12, you have 72. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? That's good. Math is hard. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just a theory for another day. Ponder it. But um, the 72 is this larger tribe. You know, back to the football analogy, like if you have all the teams, especially a team, uh, offense and defense, you've got about 72 people, right? Mm-hmm. And you can play the game. And so this is Jesus' team. It's that bigger tribe that he can send out and they're going out to all the surrounding villages. And uh, Mike Breen, uh, I think, came up with this. He's like, That's, it's big enough to dare. You can do things you could never do alone, but it's still small enough to care. Like, you know everybody's name. You kind of know each other's stories. You've got that, you know, um, intimacy. Uh, but you, there's 72 of us. Yeah. <laughs> like, what I love is... <laughs> we can do some stuff, man. I think JMO is onto something because everything Jesus did had multiplication built in. Yeah. So what if too. that's just a group, you know, yeah. however many groups, what is this, seven groups of six? Or I can't, I'm not, math is hard. Like yeah. you said, Brian. Six but, times 12, 72. Six times 12. <laughs> so 12 groups of... of Whatever, right, like whatever Peter, Peter and Andrew, I'm you're trying people. Peter and Andrew, you're overseeing these six pairs. That's these right. are your guys. Got you know? it. Yeah. Well, I, I just sent that in an email to somebody today. The the big enough to dare, small enough to care. I said, you know, the the problem with most small groups, he was just saying we we miss community. We miss community. Uh, that's funny. That was the email to. He's like, in this season we're in, we miss it. And I said, that's something that's beautiful about the microchurch for the season that we're in is we don't feel like we've lost a lot uh, because we have that extended spiritual family around us in our neighborhood where we know where they've been, they know where we've been, and we can be careful to serve each other mm-hmm. and be together when it's appropriate. And the the deal with a small group is often they're coming from different parts of a city. Mm-hmm. They're not in a neighborhood or, you know, affinity base like that. So it's like um, it, it's too small 
to really care for you in a difficult season like this where there are external rules in play, you have to be really careful. Um, and it's too small to to, um, to really dare in a big way. Like you can't attack some like passion in the city that you want to see accomplished. There's but not then enough resources and people and right. Time and all. And the the bigger prevailing model church is sure sure big enough to dare at some really big things, but they are not small enough, um, you know, intimate enough to to help serve you in a season like this either. You know, yeah, so. it's. The thing I was thinking about again, um, one of our microchurch family members was baptized, and pretty much everybody showed up, and it's up in the social space then, mm-hmm. right? But when we're meeting weekly for our family meal and discovery Bible study, you know how life is like. All oh, these people can't come this week, this month, and those that. So a lot of times it drops down to like more like twelve to twenty. Yeah, yeah, and and so it's. But when you're all together, like in that backyard, it's like we can change this subdivision, right? Like there's yeah. enough of us now. Hmm. There's something going on here. Yeah. Like we pretty much own these two blocks right now. You know what I mean? It feels amazing. And it's like we could take a couple more maybe. Yeah. And I don't want to sound too imperialistic. You guys know what I mean? Like to serve and love and Right. Um and that's it's exciting. Like there's just this energy at that level that you're like, wow. Yeah. You know, this is a big family. It's important to remember too that when you're seeing this through the identity of family, that's that's what these three twelve seventy two leads into. Just mm-hmm. using that language of family, then it you begin to see other people as part of your family that don't come to everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I don't I don't see you as this long lost cousin that uh, you know you're not really part of the family because you never show up. It's like, no, they're a part of our family and they come to important things when they can, but they don't have to be at everything. Anyway, there's there's so many dynamics of the family that we get to lay on top of this and through which we can see um, how to function and operate in a healthy, holistic way because of these concentric circles. And again, that family metaphor, it's like Jesus is being mediated through all these people. And they all reveal Jesus in a way that's unique. And that's so critical to discipleship because we're all apprenticing our life to Jesus, but we all are um, broken and limited. So there's only so much of Jesus' character I can reveal, but there's elements in Brian or elements in you or elements in Lori or elements in Tyler that they can mediate. And so together, this community, you're discipling one another, you know, because... I'm submitting my strengths and they're submitting their strengths and we're learning from one another. And, and that was the thing I started to discover, like people who maybe sort of irritated me at first because of natural affinity over time, I began to see Jesus revealed in them. Hmm. And it was like, I need that. I need like her endless generosity. Wow. And if I hadn't stayed long enough with that person, you know what I mean? I wouldn't have seen it. And now it's like, it's rubbing off on me, you know? And, uh, and that's why, you know, ministries that focus on discipleship, like one-on-one, I just think you're never going to get there. It's not enough mediation. Like you need more people in immediate proximity to you to pick up more of Jesus. And I think, you know, again, well, how do we know how to do it? Well, how did Jesus do it? Well, he had three, 12 and 72. So apparently, and that's the way the church grew in the new Testament. Apparently Jesus thinks that's about enough. <laughs> gotcha. We're going to start to wrap this thing down. Two things that I want to cover real quick. One, um, one one's kind of a, a statement, and the other one's just a question, and I'll share the reason for the question. The um, 
The statement is that we work very hard in Disciples Made to model these relationship environments. So, for instance, in Followers Made and Leaders Made, you um, it's, it's a group of up to 12. You stretch up to 13, 14, we peak at 15, and then we subdivide you into triads, mm-hmm. which is minimum of three. You know, uh, and then we uh, bake in the the divine space. You and the Father do the Bible engagement and the prayer. You share that with your accountability team, and you're part of the twelve. As you start to uh, extend on into uh, missionaries made and microchurch, that's when the other community uh, sizes of the seventy two and then the crowd uh, start to come into play. And uh, so we are all intentional all the way through there. Now our our primary um, the people that we love the most at Disciples Made um, are the people, the, the church leaders around the world who have uh, drawn a crowd, but they're not satisfied with the results they've had in that process as far as making disciples or multiplying disciples. They've gathered a crowd, but they're not satisfied with the results in multiplying to disciples. And so one of the primary strategies in those large attractional churches has a little bit, and I want to wrap up with this. I don't want to camp here long, but I think it's important to make this, make a tie here. There's kind of this funnel strategy, you know, that starts with, we invite you to the great big uh, event on the weekends. And then we try to get you into a mid-sized group. If I'm thinking one of my heroes, Andy Stanley and, and the ministry there at North Point Church, they talk about, you know, the foyer, the living room, and then the kitchen. And the goal is to get everybody into the kitchen. Well, that could be a 12. And a foyer or a living room could be a 72. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the weekend could be the crowd. So I just right. want to, if, yeah. if, if people are familiar with that language, uh, what ties do you see there? What differences do you see there? Mm-hmm. Um, and what might be missing? And Or or let's just say it this way, instead of what's missing, what would be a next step for a person whose system has completely embraced kind of that foyer, living room, kitchen model? You want to take people from the big group to the mid mid-sized group and the way they talk about that is people in a geographic area together uh men only uh, women only singles only or break it down in some type of demographic living roomish mid-sized group mm-hmm. uh environment and then that's the step that helps people take the further step on down into a kitchen or a small group uh 12 level what what would be a good next step for somebody who's embraced that that wants to go further into this full concentric, or not concentric circles, but the uh, relational environment structure? I would start with an affirmation because what they're recognizing is you need all five social spaces. And that's very significant because a lot of churches, like North Point is recognizing, we need all these. Right. And uh, a lot of churches haven't um, adopted that way of seeing Jesus' life and ministry. Um, so I think that's huge. And I love how they use the metaphor of like the foyer and the living room yeah. and the kitchen. And it's like- That's where families do. Yeah, it's all family. Yeah. Um, the breakdown is, for me, is what you see with Jesus is all those circles are overlapping. So we use the image of um, like a bullseye with concentric rings. Another image we talk about a lot is Russian nesting dolls. The Matryoshka. Yes, they all fit inside of each other and that's, so this this gang is following Jesus, right? And so he's on mission with this gang of 72. Within that is the 12. Within that is the three with the father at the center. When you get all those circles overlapping, 
You get uh, traction. You do. It's so cohesive and it's so powerful. And the experience of communitas and extended spiritual family is so rich. What happens too often, even with churches that are trying to do this, is it's like, well, I have my, th- my three are like this group over here. And then I, I have like another small group over here. And it's a different relational network. And then I'm involved with kind of a larger thing of this ministry. That's my 72. And you're kind of, they're not nested. They're in separate places mm-hmm. or programs or networks. And it, what it ends up happening is you're like the Chinese plate spinner where you're running between all these different relational networks and you're stretched too thin and you don't get the actual full effect of, of what Jesus did, which yeah. is like these are all happening nested inside of one another in the same context. And that picture kind of helps me recognize too, that if I'm a one and I'm one-on-one with the father, but I'm trying to serve a 72 without my three and 12, Mm. I and my family die. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen that a lot. You know, I talk to people who've tried to establish some type of micro church or house church or whatever, and then they flame out within a year and a half Mm because they're just exhausted. It's probably because been there. That hasn't been set. Yeah. I literally have done that. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Learn the hard way. So Jesus has an awful lot to say about community. Because there's no way you can forge a missional lifestyle without community. But what we're saying is that that mission does get forged. That community, you as a person and your ability to be a part of this multiplication of disciples that make the world a better place is going to be forged in community. And community has different layers with different purposes. We encourage you to be a part of each one of those spaces intentionally and allow those as best possible to fit in with one another. That's going to take time because you do have relationships a lot of different places. And over time, Jesus can help slot those and bring priority to those in a beautiful way. And that's really what our microchurch learning community and missionaries made are all about, is helping people take a lot of those relationships and start to organize in them. Is that correct? Absolutely. Awesome. Well, we hope that this episode has been a huge help and an encouragement to you. Community Forged. We hope that what you heard today was an encouragement to you or that it increased your curiosity in making disciples that make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our experiences or set up a coaching call, you can visit us at disciplesmade.com or email podcast at disciplesmade.com. 